Hello, and welcome to Benyo Chats. If you're curious about the world, this show is for you. How can architecture catalyze regeneration? On this episode, I speak to Hannah Loftus. Hannah is a planner and designer. She co-founded Hat Projects. Work includes regeneration in Jaywick Sands, and she considered climate, resilience, civic design, and what good architecture can do for the world. Hope you enjoy the show. Do like and subscribe, or leave a review as it helps others find the podcast. And with that, here's my chat with Hannah. Hannah, welcome. Thank you so much, Ben. So nice to be here. Let's start with building houses. You spent some time in Alabama at Rural Studios, where they try and build houses for $20,000 or so, and you helped build a house. Tell me, what was that like and what you learned? The Rural Studio is a really unique programme, and for for people who might not know anything about it, it's an outreach programme of the University of Auburn, which is one of the state universities in Alabama. It was founded by an extraordinary man called Sam Mockby nearly 30 years ago. It'll be their 30th anniversary coming up this year because he felt that architecture students weren't having enough exposure to real-life problems and, and real-life communities, that they were too stuck in their studios in the world of theory and not really learning how to build things, nor, in fact, how to work with real people who needed buildings built for them. Alabama obviously has some of the most poverty-stricken communities in the whole of the United States, and he had grown up just in the other side of the Mississippi-Alabama border in very similar situations and been working in those communities. So he thought, I'm going to just take a bunch of students out there and make them build things, <laughs> make them actually build practical, helpful projects in the community as a way of educating them very differently. So it's a really extraordinary program and it's been going since then. Sambo sadly died about 10 years after um, he found a rural studio, uh, but it's actually been continued need funnily enough the the director for the last several many years now is actually an Englishman a Yorkshireman named Andrew Freer and it is a really extraordinary program over the years the rural studio has built dozens and dozens of buildings many houses but also some public buildings library fire station park projects lots and lots of different things in the community and the project when I went to study there as an outreach fellow what's known as an outreach fellow we were tasked with trying to crack open really a systemic housing problem, a problem of failure in the housing system in the United States, which has many failures. And and I think when you try and understand the context to this, going to these small, very rural communities in West Alabama, it's, it's like nothing else. It's um, to my mind, when I went there, and it was such a surprise, even though I'd had friends who'd been there and, and heard, obviously, a lot about it, to find in the richest country in the world these communities that are living essentially in shacks and shanties. No running water sometimes, no sewage system functioning a lot of the time, in trailer homes that are often second, third hand, terrible housing conditions. And whilst in theory there was, there is funding available to construct new affordable homes, in practice the way that funding worked negated any practical solutions because it was essentially a low-cost home ownership grant that you could get. But if you were on the very minimum social security payments that families might be getting, so in the States at the time that was a disability payment of around $500 a month, 
the maximum loan you could get would be $20,000. And nobody would build you a house for $20,000. So there was this problem. So uh, my group of outreach fellows, we were the first fellows to be tasked with trying to crack this and say, actually, as architects, as designers, from a, a multitude of different backgrounds, actually, the outreach fellows is this kind of multidisciplinary unit was at the time. Could we think more creatively about how to solve this? And our house was the first in an ongoing series that what's so fantastic about the rural studio is they can iterate because they've been in the same community for such a long time. They have now iterated the $20,000 house for the last 15 years or so to learn every year the lessons of the last ones. And now it's grown into a much bigger initiative known as the Front Porch Initiative, which is actually rolling out partnership programs that are building these very low cost homes across not just parts of West Alabama, but other parts of the southern United States as well. In terms of what you learn from doing that, I think as a young architect, firstly, learning how a building is actually put together, nailing bits of wood together, wiring a house, plumbing a house, pouring foundations, all of that practical stuff. It is critical, and I think that, that what Sambo Mockby, when he founded the Rural Studio, thought about the disconnect in architects' education, I think, sadly, is still very true today. Most students that come out of architectural education are often actually scared of the process of building. They find it terrifying. They find it mysterious. They don't understand how a building can get put together they feel that it's somehow beyond them. And actually the process of building with your own physical hands in mud, in the sun, in all different weather conditions is really demystifying. And you realize that a building is just a series of things that are put together in different ways. And anybody can do that. Anybody can get tools and learn how to build something, whether that's small or big. I think that's a really important lesson. But the second piece is obviously working in a community like those communities in West Alabama to see how you actually communicate and work and collaborate with people from a very different background from oneself, with a very different life story, with a very different set of priorities and principles. And how do you not only just design with them, but work with them as human beings? The client for our house was an extraordinary lady called Miss Phillips. She was in her late 80s when we were trying to build this house for her. She lived in a house where the joists of the floor were so rotten that you would walk on them and you'd have to take care to not fall through the floor. She was diabetic. She had type 2 diabetes brought on by the kind of diet in West Alabama. She was descended from a, a, a obviously an enslaved family and then a sharecropping family in that part of the world. She grew collard greens in her backyard. She loved gardening, but she lived in what can only be described as a really precarious level of poverty. But she was amazing. She would sing songs and she would be, she would make some food for us sometimes. And you learn how to both be really humble in those situations, not to step in thinking you know the answers, mm -hmm. and also how to see beyond someone's current situation to imagine what a future might look like that is a little bit more sustainable, a bit less precarious without destroying what is fundamentally important. Um, and the reason the Front Porch Initiative is called the Front Porch Initiative now at the Rural Studio is this cultural importance of the front porch in southern homes. The front porch is where everything happens. You really cannot have a home without a porch. In fact, 
you might almost be better with the porch and, <laughs> and none of the rest of the house sometimes because it is so important to have that space in the heat and the humidity. So there's a climate element, but also socially. The house that we built for Miss Phillips, the house itself was pretty tiny. The porch was nearly as big as the house, the screen porch, because actually that extends the living area and gives that continuity in terms of how the kind of culture of family life, the culture of those communities work. What was your favorite part of building or maybe what was the perhaps most misunderstood that you came to realize, oh, when you put this together, this happens? Or you could also reflect on what was your least favorite part (laughs) of building, maybe when it was raining on you. But um, yeah, what was your favorite part of building? I love learning how to do wiring and plumbing, actually, because I gave up science subjects relatively early after GCSE. So I, uh, and I felt that was something that I was never really going to understand. And actually now I can do the wiring and the plumbing in our house. And I, I feel confident with all of that, which to me, that was good. I'd done carpentry before because I'd worked in theatre and I'd built sets. So carpentry was a sort of relatively familiar skill set and allied trades to that. But I think it, for me, it was great to actually learn, yeah, how to wire and, and plumb a home and that that stuff again, is not mysterious. It's just gravity and basic physics and being rigorous and systematic in your work. And, and you will get there in the end. Yeah, very in demand. So I'm going to I'm going to jump from Alabama to the east of England to Jaywick Sands, because I've observed your work over the decades. And I see a sort of a lot of interlinks. Jaywick Sands is also a relatively poor place. There's a lot to do with working in the community and what they really want. Would you maybe describe what you learned from working on Jaywick Sands and where the project stands now? Yeah, I think it's a really pertinent analogy. And I remember actually saying to Andrew Freer, the director at the Royal Studio a number of years ago, probably the place that is closest to West Alabama in the UK is Jaywick. Again, for those who might not know anything about the history of Jaywick Sands, I think it's really interesting to give a little background. A hundred years ago, this community that is now over 3,000 people on the Essex coast. There wasn't a single home there. There was nothing. It was just a salt marsh. But something happened in the late 20s and early 30s in the UK or in in parts of southern England, which was called the Plotlands Movement. And what this was at the time, there was an agricultural depression and developers started to buy marginal agricultural land and divide it up into tiny plots and sell those tiny plots off mostly to working class or lower middle class Londoners as holiday plots where you could then build a little chalet, a hut, bring a railway carriage or something if you wanted and and in a way have your weekend escape to out of the crowded city, out of what were quite often difficult conditions in the city but enabled by the fact we now had railways, we had omnibuses and things that could take you out of the city quite quickly. You could have a little kind of slice of the English countryside to yourself because there were no real planning rules at the time in the way that we have them now. Jaywick Sands was one of those Plotlands communities that was founded at that time by a developer called Frank Stedman, a land speculator, who was a sort of funny mixture of a socialist utopia and a, <laughs> and a kind of speculative investor. And it, it grew quite quickly tiny plots really glorified beach huts you could buy a kind of prefabricated one or one out of a catalogue of little patterns that he had or you could build your own and it was a fantastic holiday resort in the 30s wonderful pictures of people enjoying themselves splashing around on the beach having this amazing time but after the 
Second World War, when many of those Londoners were being bombed out of their homes in East London, many of them started to think, why can I just stay on my plot full time? Actually, I've got this little piece of land. I've got the basics of a small house there. Maybe I'm just going to maybe I'm just going to stay here. The seaside's nice. I have happy memories of it. What was intended to be a holiday community without any permanent residents started to have a permanent full time population, but with no infrastructure. So Stedman had always struggled to try and get the council to make kind of water connections and sewage connections through the water boards and so forth at the time, continued to struggle. So you got this community growing up again, very like those West Alabama communities in some senses, with very little basic infrastructure, but people wanting to be there um, and starting to assert their rights as well to say, we are living here, we should be having services, we should be having our rubbish collected, we should be having water and sewage and electricity. But really, for most of the in the next decades, the story is one of uh, a struggle between the local councils, who really didn't want anybody to be permanently living there, and the freeholders and the, the residents themselves who wanted to be there. And the councils really... To simplify, took the view that if they did not provide all of those services, people would not be there. But that eventually had proved to be an unsustainable situation, and gradually over the years, some services were introduced. But it's so it's a community with this really extraordinary story of resilience and this kind of self-made DIY ethos. It looks very unlike anywhere, really, in, in the rest of the country. There, there were other Plotlands communities around the place, so Langdon Hills near Basildon, which was pretty much demolished when they built Basildon Newtown. Um, down in Shoreham-by-Sea, there are still some remaining Plotlands, Canvey Island, a few other places up the Thames Valley as well. But most of them have been translated over time to what I would call a fairly normal suburbia for England. Jaywick still has a completely different pattern a completely different look as a place still very much the bones of those original tiny timber frame chalets very tightly plotted much more like you would see in the states and some shotgun house communities in place like houston little gable fronted houses onto the street tiny backyards very tightly packed um, and everyone different they've all been customized and adapted by their occupants over time so it doesn't have the sense of a kind of, if you like, regular housing estate with this sort of uniformity that we might expect in other places. It's got this very ad hoc nature. And, and the residents are fiercely proud of their community and they are very fond of its character. But the reality is that, unfortunately, Jaywick is mostly in the news for having the worst deprivation statistics for the whole of the United Kingdom, which goes across all of the indices of multiple deprivation, health, employment, um, access to services, education outcomes, etc. So it's a community with some really big challenges. And coupled to that, it was built on a salt marsh and it's in the tidal floodplain. And in the 1953 floods, 37 people were killed there. And with climate change, obviously, the flood risk is increasing all the time now. Again, even that the flood defences were, were improved after 1953, they're reaching, starting to reach the end of their lifespan again, and there need to be some improvements. So, sorry, that's a long piece of background, but I think it's important to situate both socially and, and historically as well as environmentally the place. Our practice were commissioned by Tendering District Council, that is the council of the area, back in 2018, to 
try and look at a, a, a regeneration strategy for Jaywick Sands to address the housing quality issues because whilst some of the homeowners look after their homes really well and are very house proud, the reality is there's a, a lot of homes that have become part of portfolios of private rented accommodation in very bad condition and that in terms of housing policy and how our what works in this country at the moment I think it's a huge scandal that we have essentially allowed the outsourcing of affordable housing provision into the hands of private landlords who are being paid by the state through the benefit system but the the consequence in a community like Jaywick is if you have parts of that community some streets will have 50 60 percent private rented accommodation that has a really serious impact in terms of blight on the wider community and, and serious social impacts because there's no sort of support. So they wanted to look at housing quality, they wanted to look at the, the issue around flood defences and how in the longer term what is the strategy here and we did some initial research in kind of late 2018, 2019 some initial engagement and, and consultation with members of the local community there. Pandemic then came along, a bit of a pause during the pandemic, although actually one, if you like, sub-project of this wider strategy got picked up by, through stimulus funding from the pandemic. And that's a building that we have now designed and built and opened earlier this year, which is called Sunspot, which is 24 affordable business units there. As part of the kind of economic approach. Anyway, after the pandemic, late 21, early 22, we started back on the kind of regeneration strategy. And now we're actually at the moment in consultation on what we think that looks like. We did a cons further consultation last year on some options and scenarios. This year, we've gone back with what we think and with the council, the kind of best strategy might be. And it's really complex. It's a fascinating and complex place because I won't go into all the details of the strategy. Everyone can read it online. But it's a place where the issues around climate change and deprivation really intersect in a way that kind of amplifies and multiplies their effects. A community that had that level of, of climate change threat, flood risk, but was more wealthy, frankly, one wouldn't worry so much about because... The people who would be living there would have the resources to be able to firstly know and understand those risks. And secondly, if the bad thing happened, the resources, financial resources, as well as their own personal capacity to probably be able to cope a lot better. But when you're talking about a community which is firstly very ageing now, so the demographic skews very old, although there are patches of families with very young children, so it's quite a divided uh, demographic. Secondly, has very poor health, mobility, people with oxygen cylinders, people with diabetes, very serious health problems in a lot of parts of the community, um, and very low cash resources. A lot of retired people who have sold up their house in East London, bought a little honey house in Jaywick Sands based off the back of their happy ha childhood memories of seaside holidays there and are living off the difference they're eking out, that difference in the kind of cash value of a house in London for half a million or a million quid and a house in Jaywick Sands for 60 to 100,000. So they've got very little resources to fall back on if a bad thing happens. And this question about what is the duty of care of the state, what is the duty of care of us to our fellow citizens in a time of climate crisis 
in one in a situation where people do not have those resources we're seeing that with the cops obviously globally in terms of small nations and, and and so forth being threatened and saying hey there is a responsibility but we have that right here in our own country we have this really pressing question about what is the responsibility is it sustainable for communities to even exist in these locations if so what should they look like? What should they feel like? How would they be best defended against the floods and against the tidal flood risk? And how is that equitably dealt with when we've got such disparities in resources across the country? How do we find a system that is fair here? Because there are parts of central London that are in as, as bad a flood risk as JWX Sands, but the real estate there is worth billions. The, the resources of the, the owners of those parts of land and the councils and so forth are very different how do we find some way of 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 calibrating that and if i'm frank i don't think at a national level we have that sorted out at all that's really fascinating on the policy level so perhaps we can dwell on that and maybe you want to comment about your the actual little business unit project as well because there's so many things within that um so some of what we hear in other places where you've got rural communities, I guess this is often the very naive urbanite view, which was expressed by the councils, is surely they should move, right? Not sustainable, climate risk, blah, blah, blah. Why should we give them a hospital for 200 people when that or schools and services and all of that? So I'd be interested in what the responses and the kind of things that you talk about and which have been in this discussion. And I guess the second one then going one level uh, down from that is this sense of the balance on consultation that some people think oh we're doing too many consultations or of the wrong sort and then if it's something that government doesn't like to hear they don't follow them anyway and if it's something that they like to hear it feels like it it was a setup on the other hand often a centralized or even a regionalized area or government zone doesn't really know what a local populace wants right which is the whole point of consultation uh, and then you have this higher level i guess it's the paternalistic versus not as does a centralized force ever really know should it do it should it just let that which is this on the extremes between completely planned to versus unplanned and everything in the middle and it seems like jay wick is at the center of a lot of those debates so i'd be interesting in any reflections that you have about whether we should be abandoning communities or not and even how you do that and then that level down about do consultations really work or how do you get them to work would probably be the better uh, question. And then maybe how you then through an economic lens seems to be one bit which at least there's some agreement from some sides is possibly a way to work through the, through this. Yeah, I think to, to address the, that sort of question about should we be quote unquote abandoning communities, there have been some tentative moves towards what's known as managed retreat and, and the world of risk management and, and climate change is full of these wonderful euphemisms, isn't it? But managed retreat essentially says we won't no longer maintain the flood defences in a particular area. And I grew up in the coastal floodplain, actually. My parents' house is in the coastal floodplain and my father has lived there since 1947 and lived through the 1953 flood. So this was all quite familiar territory to me on a personal sort of level. And Fairbourne in Wales is actually the kind of first community of homes where a decision was announced a few years ago to say 
the defences would no longer be maintained and essentially that community was going to have to look to be decommissioned, which, of course, the residents there were furious about. And I think there's an interesting question because this country has so far said we won't compensate people. We'll give you what they're saying is we'll give you warning, we'll give you kind of 20 years warning that that, that, that we're, we're no longer going to maintain your defences. And it's up to you in that time to, to make your own move. We're not going to give you a relocation package. We're not going to actually uh, financially support that, which is unlike many other countries. So other countries are providing re- relocation packages, whether it's looking at some of the Nordic countries, whether it's looking at parts of the States even, actually. They are looking at supporting people to move. And I I think that we have to have a bit more of a national debate about that because I think the reality of these communities, as I said, is that you can have great disparities of wealth. Where I where I grew up is on the near the Suffolk coast, and there are communities on coasts there which have some houses in the floodplain, and they're owned by very wealthy people. And sure, I don't think we should be subsidising them to have to relocate. They could easily, relatively easily, fund their own support but when you're talking about communities in these much more deprived places the reality is that money isn't they people don't have that money and people therefore won't move so Fairbourne from what I've heard recently in a strange way the property prices have actually gone up there which is very unusual and the the sort of relocation decommissioning program seems to have gone quite quiet Um, we need to have a national debate about this and I think this leads to your second question around consultation. These are really hard, big, tough questions for which there are no answers that are going to make everybody happy. It is not possible to somehow make some magic consensus where everybody is going to go, oh, you know what, we've just found this magic bullet for this. What a brilliant idea. God, you've cracked it. Here's a, here's a perfect solution to making it fair and affordable and all the rest of it. We've discovered a magic floating island where yes. everyone can live. We, there, are no, there are no easy solutions. So this takes leadership, but it does also take that consultation and engagement with people. And there's an intergenerational aspect here. When we do consultation in JWIC, some people there are saying, frankly, I'm going to be dead. This is not my problem. And that's a totally fair point for them to make. They just want to live the rest of their however many years happily and in their community with their friends, where they, with the, the sea view that they love. And what comes after that is not their problem. At the same time as obviously there are generations to come, not only in that community, children and the younger people, but also nationally, the generations that we're going to have to pay for and and look after and, and take care or take the actions that are needed. And how do we make that fair? My personal view is that I, I don't think that there is too much consultation. I think in many cases there is too little but I think the kind of consultation we do is very flawed so we do a lot of work around community engagement consultation participation call it what you wish and I'm constantly trying to shift the emphasis of that away from the sort of stereotype of have your say to me I that's a phrase I ban from our office 
never advertise a consultation with have your say because really what you're just saying is come and spout off and shoot your mouth off about what you do and don't like and we'll just listen to it and do absolutely nothing about it no that's not the point for me the point of talking to people and I think we've got to call this what it is it's just talking to people talking to people normal people in the street could be your neighbors could be your friends it is a research tool and I think we should be taking much more from the social sciences and less if you like from the the way that policymakers have often approached consultation as part of a sort of systematic process towards getting a policy agreed we need to look at it as research we need to look at it as insight understanding those very human factors that are at play understanding how people understand their own environments their own situations in life and being able to take that research away analyze it quite methodically and use it to inform better decision making so it's it's understanding that those people are the experts in their own condition and the job of ourselves as quote-unquote experts, policymakers, planners, whatever you might say, our job is to try and untangle what they tell us about their lives and their environments and understand where the interventions can be most effective in that based on what that research is telling us. Then there's a secondary job, which is about education and capacity building. We have communities, particularly lower income communities, who the kind of failures of our education system over the last decades really fall heavily on. And their understanding, their ability to understand the very complex nature of these risks. And risk is hard for anyone to understand. We're notoriously bad as humans at understanding and quantifying risk. When you're trying to talk to people about a 0.5% AEP probability of a tidal flood risk happening, that just means nothing to anybody. We need to be able to take the time to sit with people and explain that to them in simple terms, step by step, allow them to absorb that, allow them to cogitate on it, allow them to come back with more questions and say they don't understand it or can you go through that again or what does that really mean or I've been thinking about what you said and this bit doesn't make sense. And that can't really be achieved in a six or eight week consultation period, which is this kind of process that typically is gone through. That is a much more embedded process of saying, actually, how do we make, allow people to make good decisions about their own lives? Um, So I do think that we need a a bit of a rethink on this. Of course, there's a role for, if you like, the sort of statutory consultation where you go out to your statutory consultation bodies, Natural England or the Environment Agency or whoever. They're professionals. They know how to respond to things within a six or eight week period and write you a very lengthy response and you can go through it point by point. But when you're talking to communities, it's just a bit of a crazy Mm. system. So, yeah, so we try to advocate with our clients for a rather different approach. As always, they're local authorities and they have to abide by certain rules. So we, we have mixed success with that. And I think we try to carry that through. But having worked in Jaywick for nearly five years now, I think what is interesting is that at least I feel like our team has started to grow some of those relationships in a different way. And it is 
it's slow steps gaining trust not being seen too much as a sort of consultants from outside who just coming to try and tell people what to do even though we're quite local in, in the sense of our office is very locally based so yeah it's been a really interesting process and a lot of lessons for wider policy making I think. And how did you arrive at the structure that you arrived at and I have so many other thoughts as I'm thinking why do we not really have a rural studios here in England or the UK and all of these other types of things but maybe we can see it through the lens of the mm. actual building that you came up with and and why it is how it is and, and the process you you got to yeah so the the building that my practice completed and I think what's fun about our practice is that we do operate across these scales so we kind of work on these strategic projects and planning planning projects as well as on individual buildings and spaces the the building that we completed it's 24 affordable business units for affordable rent plus a covered market plus some public open space community garden bus stops and practical things like that and it came out of the fact that whilst when we went to talk started to talk to people in in jerick about their issues whilst the council was saying the focus is on flood risk and all these sort of big knotty wicked problems the thing that people were saying to us in the community was jobs and services. There are no jobs here and it's impossible to get to any work. It's a very isolated community, relatively isolated community. Clacton on Sea, which is just up the road, is not so far, but Clacton is also very deprived. Not many jobs there. The next nearest sort of economic centre to get there, you would need to take a bus, which would wind its way through villages for an hour and a half each way and actually wouldn't ever get you to work on time and couldn't get you home. So this is a really big problem. And by the way, around half of the households in the most deprived bits of Jaywick Sands do not have access to a car or van. So you've got a community who are totally dependent on foot, public transport or, or bicycle. So people were saying there are no jobs here. They were also saying there's no services here. There's no kind of basic lack of shops to buy things in, food, as well as, in a way, the things that make you feel good about your life, hairdressers, things like that. Very little in the way of local economy. And so we thought, actually, this is something that maybe can, something can be done about more short term. And we were talking to the council as our client about this and saying maybe you should consider looking at this economic question a bit further because don't these two things go together as in if you have more local services there's also more jobs in the community that can also employ people and actually this question about how do you make an economy in these sorts of places that is for the community and by the community that keeps that spend local it's not about trying to attract some big external investor who's going to open a factory or something but all of that money disappears into the wider world it's can we look at a more localized way of stimulating the economy so happily they were interested in that idea and commissioned us to do a little bit more research and market testing to see whether that was feasible and we did that market testing in a rather different way than you would normally do it because normally if you ask someone to do a market study on on making new business space or workspace somewhere they'll ring up a bunch of estate agents and say how many people have you got on your books looking for an office or a industrial unit or whatever in area x obviously nobody was going to be on the books <laughs> looking for a workspace unit in jaywick sands because it wasn't an established employment location didn't already have a kind of pool of businesses so people just not thinking about whether they wanted to locate there 
so we did two things. Firstly, we looked at the wider data across the area. So there was a there's a quantitative aspect, and we found that there was a shortage in the wider area, which was actually in the council's own economic studies, a shortage of start up and grow on sort of small units for obvious reasons, not very viable commercially for commercial developers of, of commercial space to provide that kind of space. So actually there was a lack. So then we said that means that there's a hidden economy, if you like, of people who are needing space but are not finding it. And in the meantime, they're working from home or they're working out of kind of garage or they're working out of a sort of rather ad hoc renting a, a old stable on a farm somewhere or whatever it might be or looking to Colchester and, and, and other further afield places. So we thought if we can go and talk to some of those tenants and we can establish whether they would see it as a barrier to come and actually work in, locate their business in Jaywick Sands. So we went out and actually just talked to a lot of businesses. And what we found was, no, it was absolutely not seen as a barrier for them to come and locate in Jaywick. Uh, they weren't put off by the unfortunate uh, stereotyped bad reputation of, of the community in the press they were mostly local people that didn't really bother them um, really they just needed space that was affordable uh, suitable obviously for their needs um, and accessible which and, and you know if, if you are a business with you know it's actually got fairly good road access although the public transport access is poor fairly good road access um, so we managed to demonstrate that we felt there was a sufficient pipeline of businesses who would be interested and take up space and particularly at two ends one being, being small retail so this point about actually there's few shops and services mm -hmm. there but you've got this beach as well and you've got this opportunity to really you know trade in the summer off of visitors and secondly at the kind of smaller if you like workshop through to the small end of light industrial type scale so kind of small type manufacturing mm -hmm. type businesses and things like that and how many have been taken up is it all full already did people pre yeah these? yeah it's full it, i think they may have one or two units left but it's full it opened in late september and it's doing really well and i think the other bit is the market so the market's really important both as a way of providing additional retail for the community so being able to have food stalls and things like that but also it's a stepping stone towards business startup business it's the cheapest way you can try out a new business mm. idea is to rent a market stall for 10 pounds or whatever a pitch um, and have a go at your idea um, and it brings the community together as well in a way that's social so yeah it's exciting to see it really be busy now and bustling and a huge diverse array of businesses working out the building but also the building i think from a design perspective it's really important that it's a visible symbol of change in the community it's we aren't just interested in making space for space's sake but it's also got to say something building spaces environments they have meaning they carry meaning and the value and the quality of those spaces says something about how valued that community is. And I think too often we are, particularly in the public sector, I'm afraid to say it at this time, unwilling to have higher ambitions and aspirations for the sheer beauty and quality of spaces that we make for people. And it's not really a cost question in my view. It's not more expensive. It's just about actually how do you procure, what kind of procurement do you have of your teams that are working on these projects? And how much do you really care about the communities that you're building them for? Don't look down on them. Don't give them the sort of the dumb answer just because they might be poorer or more deprived communities. Give them something that 
is bright and bold and exciting and is something that people can take some joy out of in their everyday life. And what do you find beautiful about the building? I've had people note the colours, the colour palette. Yes. Uh, and also the space and the, the quality of materials, which actually, to your point, aren't super special. You're not talking no. about imported granite or anything no, like not that. No, not at all. But what made you think this building is of quality or, or of beauty? Yeah, I think it's, it is a very economic building. It's built like a in a way that the technology of it is really just the technology of a normal kind of like industrial shed. But there is so much you can do with shape, firstly, just subtle changes to the way that the shape of the building is designed. The fact that when you see it from the beach, it has this kind of zigzag profile rather than just seeing a kind of long monolithic eaves profile like a, a sort of typical shed building might have. And colour is really important. On a grey, rainy February day, a community, even on the beautiful beach that there is there, right in front of the building, it can feel quite grim. So it was really important that the building never felt grim, that it always felt joyful, uplifting and generous. And colour is part of that, form is part of that. Also, there's things like the canopy that shades and shelters space around the building. That's practical. It prevents the south-facing units overheating in the summertime. But it's also about saying, actually, it's dry. It, the building is bigger than it would otherwise be. Things like the bus shelter, which no one had really thought of, but we said there's no bus stop here, and the bus stop just down the road is it's literally a pole and there's not even a pavement to stand on. So we moved the bus stop and we made a bus shelter with a bench and a, a shade and, and shelter, which is sounds extremely simple, but actually makes a huge difference in a community where the, most of the bus stops have no bench and no shelter. There's, it's, the, the work was put in to try and say, without it costing more money, without it being impractical, using materials that are extremely robust, profiled metal and things like that that are typical for kind of seaside buildings modern seaside buildings um, like buildings that are built on the piers or buildings that are built on the seafront arcades and amusements the similar language to that this is not about parachuting in a design language that is alien to the place but it's got to feel joyful and people have got to feel proud of it in the community something that they can actually say you can't miss that building. You can <laughs> look it, out for it. It's a landmark. Does it have a nickname yet? It's called Sunspot. Sunspot. Which is great because yeah. actually that's the name of the old amusement arcade that used to be on the site, which was pulled down when the holiday economy started to tank. So it's also revived that name and the kind of hopefulness of that name, which is really sweet. That sounds like a just such a brilliant example of place-based regeneration done. I guess there's been a lot of debate around it because quite a lot of place-based regeneration hasn't worked so well and this tension between people and place. I thought for a moment I might go up a level in thinking about policy or some of the mm. ideas behind that, although reflecting on this, it seems that it's just getting a lot of detail and right on the local level. But there does seem to be one of these arguments about place and people. And I guess at this very high level in thinking about globally, there are these people who believe places or cities or towns should generally be driven by jobs. Maybe you put in some transport and service infrastructure, but essentially let it be 
unplanned or, or limited planning. And I guess particularly you see this in some of the non-Western countries. That's essentially how they develop. And some of those develop really well and some of those develop into slums. You can have arguments on both sides. Or you go to the other extreme when you think, okay, can I completely plan this place or city and and maybe sitting around that you have this idea of charter cities like maybe we can just completely plan something uh, from scratch and actually you have some examples of planned places which work quite well and some examples of planned places which don't work at Mm. all so there's probably no real consensus on it but I guess given that and policy and, and maybe either reflecting globally on cities or in the UK do you think you lean more to elements of planning or more elements of unplanning or jobs or how do you meld the best of both of those sets of ideas yeah I'm a planner as well as a designer and I think there's a really important role for planning but I think you touched on a really critical point which is actually human behavior is not a planable thing people are going to do things that confound the (laughs) expectations of economists and planners who like everything to be extremely orderly but people just don't behave like that and people also want to feel that they have freedom and they have choice one of the things that's so important in Joe Sands and why people love it so much is this coming back to this point that every house looks different they love the fact that it's their own identity is stamped on their own physical environment and one of the things that they said to us through the consultation when we talked about kind of new design guidance and coding for Joe Sands is it's really important that we don't lose this this sense that every house is different you can't make them all look the same and people do want to feel that they have agency and have yeah have capacity to make choices so whilst I think the economic planning and I think strategic spatial planning I think is really important and it's something that we have completely lost in the UK I'm afraid over the last 15 years, we used to have regional spatial plans and and strategies. We no longer have them. So it's a very disjointed approach to planning that we have. And I think that does urgently need to be addressed. We cannot look at this country from an economic or a climate perspective and and not look nationwide. We're not that big of a country. We really do need to be looking across the whole country and having a joined up economic and spatial strategy. But you I also strongly believe that on we need more ability at then at the local level for people to feel that they do have some agency. And that's a really difficult one because the reality is that the the person who moves into a new build house on a new build housing estate, practically the day they move in, they become opposed to any more development in their local area. That is a known fact that just happens. They've been the beneficiary of housing development but as soon as they're in that house they want to be the last house that was ever built in the area and never see anything change again so have trying to find a way to say there are some kind of tough messages here that actually you know what maybe you can't be that selfish always you're going to need to see change but also there's a quid pro quo there that actually you might have more ability to change your own house to be able to extend or adapt your own building people get so frustrated when they see their own back extension or not being able to do simple things get held up in the planning system at the same time as it appears that major housing developments hundreds of or thousands of homes get waved through now i know behind the scenes those are not waved through those big schemes go through 
a tortuous and, and very time consuming and, and very rigorous process, not always with the right outcomes, but they do go through a process. However, to the person on the local level who doesn't see any of that, they see a system that is not working for them. They see a system where they can't add a conservatory or add another change the colour of their front door sometimes in some cases or put solar panels on their roof or whatever it might be and I think that's we've got to look at what the quid pro quo is in the planning but to come to your wider point I think to the the wider scale of unplanned development and some development and so forth it's really problematic and I obviously I, I think we're very far in this country from going down that route but globally when we're talking about inequality and we're talking about resilience to climate as well you look at some of those very precarious slum communities and they do tend to also cluster to the parts of the land whether it's favelas in in, in Rio that are on the, the very steep mountainsides very vulnerable to things like landslips and landslides and heavy rain through to development in India and places in floodplains along rivers those the poorest people often end up in the most physically vulnerable places so I think there is a real obligation on city authorities and regional authorities to be more strategic about that to take more of a grip on it and to actually help provide for for citizens in a way that isn't going to endanger them one last thought on policy before turning to perhaps another project or two so there's been a little bit of talk around uh, design codes or use of pattern books which actually i think actually i think it was a um, conversation we had either on email or x twitter or something like that about the fact that they've gone back in time i think the dutch Mm. had quite a few of these in the 16 or 1700s as a kind of way forward. Critics might say you get these very identikits, no identity, but Mm. perhaps also poorer quality, poor materials, particularly on the edge of towns and suburbs where you're going, this is not housing, which makes anyone uh, filled with joy. On the other hand, proponents are talking about, I guess they say gentle densification in, in urban areas where you've got stuck in this planning or can you do extensions or things like that. Um, I picked up that it seems that some architects seem to be a little bit tentative or not particularly involving themselves in the pattern or patterning decision or this debate, which perhaps surprised me, but I'm not particularly hooked into the system, so maybe there is more debate. But do you think design codes or pattern books are one way of some sort of compromise unlock on here? And do you think that's an interesting policy idea? Yeah, so we work on some design codes and I guess that shows that we do think that there's some value in them. I think it's we've gotten into a kind of rather curious situation though at the minute when with regards to the aesthetics of development, the style, if you like, of development, with some odd politics, if I'm perfectly honest, I think around what's seen as good, quote-unquote, attractive, quote-unquote, beautiful, quote-unquote, development stemming from things like the building better building beautiful commission which was chaired by roger scruton until he died and things like that which are seen by many as quite backward looking everything needs to look like a georgian or a victorian street or terrace and not maybe acknowledging some of the ways that culturally we need to be building for today and and for today's communities obviously the, the Georgian and the Victorian and the Edwardian stock that we have is in many ways wonderful and in many ways synonymous with sort of England. But I think one has to look at how they, the economic systems that they derived out of and the social systems that they derived out of also and question 
what are the lessons that we take from them from today and what are the lessons that maybe are not relevant and I think it's it's an area that I think we are treading carefully around at the minute because I think that there's a real value to having more of a pattern book approach but I think it's got to be much more genuinely based on how what how is the functionality of these buildings working on on a number of levels not just a technical functionality building regulations and so forth this obviously should be taken for granted but things like climate overheating huge problem we must be designing and if we are having new pattern books they must be including things like external shading for south and west facing windows really basic stuff but really important and other climate adaptation measures actually as much as mitigation because the reality is we are in a very different world and secondly that I think this focus on if you like aesthetics needs to focus on the different communities that we have now there's a question around the meaning that's attached and I I I suppose this is where I sometimes I'm a little bit surprised because the kind of gentle density proponents and I think it's a it's a well-chosen phrase because you can't really disagree with it we all want to see that but I there's a when I see let's say the buildings of Whitehall be held up as an example of how everything should be built now why don't we build new office buildings like the foreign commonwealth office was built in the early 20th century i think one also has to say what are those buildings really what what are the meanings that they're embodying for a more diverse society with very different backgrounds and cultures and they're they're quite problematic buildings they are loaded with meaning around imperialism, around their references back to ancient Greece and Rome, of course, through their kind of neoclassicism. There's a lot going on there, and I think it behoves us to unpick a little bit more around this question of style that's not just, isn't it pretty? Isn't it attractive to your uh, to, the, to the eyes of whoever it is who's making that statement? I think beauty comes in many forms. I think we could be a little bit more generous in finding beauty in different forms. Mm. But also, I think we absolutely need to push back on the lowest common denominator meanness of design that one sees from a lot of the commercial development sector. Yeah, that's really nuanced. So obviously there's been ongoing debates on form and function and this unspoken, sometimes spoken as we've, we know humans give meaning to any big endeavors, building places, art, all of this, spaces, porch, all the way back to what seems like simple structures and the like. And that's before you consider that buildings designed 17, 1800s or even 50 years ago are not designed for technology, sustainability, climate, all of the things of today where I've been in yeah. some of those Whitehall. In fact, I've even worked in things like Corbusier buildings and the like, which are just very poorly considered in terms of heating and, and all of that, because it wasn't a it wasn't a challenge of the time. It wasn't of their consideration. So I think Or it wasn't even a priority. Sometimes those buildings 
functioned badly from the outside. Yeah, but, they did. But, and I think what is wonderful about us as humans is that we're really able to adapt things. And I think we shouldn't be demolishing all of these buildings, their, their embodied carbon, their, their, their structures. Actually, the ability to adapt them over time, adapt them to new, to be quite radical about how we mm. adapt and change them, and then learn from that as well. And, and this is where I think we can re- afford to relax a little bit more, to say, actually, the most important thing is that we build well, as in these the structures that aren't going to be needing to be pulled down mm. in 20 or 30 years time that buildings that actually can endure and have that ability to change and adapt as we learn as our technology changes you know we're working on all sorts of ages of buildings at the moment and that kind of robustness to be able to say yeah it can take a bit of a a, a bashing and it can take a bit of a change I think it's really important. Yeah, I mean, that gets, begs the question, like, how long should a building or structure last? Because if you do carbon analysis and you're assuming the building's going to last 100, 200, we have buildings which are 500, arguably 1,000 years old. Absolutely. It's a very different calculation to yes. 10, 20, 30, 40. Perhaps that's one to consider about the age of buildings and that in public space. But maybe you could do it through the lens of just choosing another project that you'd like mm. to talk about could be one of yours could be something else but obviously you've done a lot of this public space mm-hmm. a sort of museum and, and gallery work mm. which i guess we would assume is going to last a long time as well as some private space work and you could mm. also comment on other projects or things that you see in the world but yeah any other project you'd like to pick on and, and maybe picking up on the themes of how long buildings should last for i guess we've done aesthetics a little bit and sustainability a little bit any project you mm. like yeah, I think that time dimension is something that we're really interested in. And that spans across all of the kind of planning projects as well, where we're talking about 20, 30 plus year strategies. 100 years is what we're planning for in terms of flood defences in Jaywick Sands. Who knows what the world is going to look like in 100 years and what kind of homes. But the, the flood defences need to look at that time horizon. We do work with quite a lot of existing buildings. For some reason, we've worked on quite a few town halls, actually, which date from the late Victorian period. Great municipal flowering of all of these big municipal structures that were built for a very particular point in time as a very particular expression of civic pride. Fast forward another 120 years and they the way our, our civic bureaucracies work is really different. Mm. So a lot of those structures have fallen into new uses or into no use at all. And, and, and a lot of the time we're charged at bringing them back into use. And I think they are fascinating. So we've worked on a number of them. Um, we worked a little bit on Shoreditch Town Hall very long time ago when it was early days of its uh, conversion into kind of arts and cultural use. Um, we've worked on Redbridge Town Hall, which is in Ilford Town Centre, and that um, also was a, um, is working with space studios to make artist workspace and gallery space there. Um, we're currently working on Lowestoft Town Hall up on the east coast um, in Suffolk, um, which is a quite a major project to bring this civic building back into use. And, you know, this question of robustness and what you keep and what you have to adapt is really pertinent to them because ultimately it's the kind of basic structure as well as the external materials of wall and to a degree roof that matter, that need to... If, if those are starting to fall apart, you've got a really big problem. But so long as those kind of basic elements remain in fairly good shape, 
it's an onion. You can replace other layers in and around that. It's quite easy to replace a roof covering and renew that over time. Much easier, actually, than replacing wall walling to, to a lot of degrees. Part of that's also about the aesthetics. You can replace wiring, obviously plumbing, floors, wall finishes. You can make partitions or take partitions out that are non-structural. You can rethink a lot of things around the building, but still there's something of that physical essence of it that is remaining and I think that continuity is really important for communities as well that they these buildings are their landmarks within your mental map of your community and you want to have that continuity at the same time as look what you could explore this kind of very different way of using that building into the future and we do talk about a lot of that the, the age of buildings we've worked on some buildings much much older back to 13th 14th century bones if you like of, of a building and they're these remarkably enduring things and I think we it's wonderful to observe the completely unpredictable ways that these buildings have been used someone who built a church in we're, we're doing some public realm around a church that was built in 900 and 38 or something Saxon started church tower which then was much adapted in the medieval period they couldn't possibly imagine the environment that this now sits in the kind of world that sits in but it sits there as this kind of artifact it's, it's like a sort of sentinel observing this really long time scale of change um, and it's I think that's remarkable and wonderful and I would love us to take and to be able to persuade our clients to take more of that approach to new buildings that are built now. We often talk about trying to create the heritage of tomorrow or the next generation. The buildings that are going to be those much-loved, really enduring yeah. buildings that, that do stand the test of time. And I wrote a piece recently that was talking about this a little bit and noting that a little bit like children... When a building is first finished, actually, it's the start of its life. The, the, the completion of the physical building is the beginning of its life as a thing in the world. And like a newborn baby, everyone kind of goes, it's so beautiful yeah. and it's so great and cute. And, oh, looking, I can't get enough of the pictures of it. And it's all shiny and perfect. And then they do tend to go through a period which is like the sort of awkward teenage years where everything just seems to go wrong. They're starting to look a bit shabby. They're starting to, things are starting to age. Even wiring and plumbing and all those sorts of things don't have a very long lifespan. They do need to be renewed on a relatively quick timescale. Maybe the original owners or clients for the building have moved on and you've got new management who maybe don't really understand it so well or don't love it so much or are stretched on their budgets and they can't afford to maintain it that well there's a common misperception that new buildings don't need any maintenance they still need a lot of maintenance you need to invest in your maintenance from day one so they go through this sort of awkward period and then also their aesthetics tend to go out of date so people start to not find them that attractive <laughs> Um, and this is the danger point, because at that point, people can go, let's pull it down. It's just it's too expensive to maintain. It's not working. Ugly. And we've seen this with Victorian buildings. The, the great campaign to pull, pull down loads of Victorian buildings in the kind of mid 20th century, seen as overly ornamented and too gaudy and too this and too that and god we just don't need them they're just so out of date and now we see it with brutalist and, and 1960s and 1970s buildings people saying oh god they're just big lumps of concrete and let's pull them down 
But if you get beyond that, actually, people start to love them again. People start, they have start to have this kind of different life again. And I, so I, I would almost like to see a rule that you couldn't pull down a building, <laughs> that you were forced to look after it, that you had to look after it for at least 100 years and see, see what happens over that span of three or four generations what new things come out of that and there are some wonderful examples of buildings that have been completely reimagined you could go to the palais de tokyo in in paris which is an amazing art center in this kind of old grand palace very radical you could go at the other extreme and look at this car park in mid wales which has been transformed into an art center and a market and it's, it's a very ordinary concrete car park structure there's so many amazing examples i think we need to be a little bit less quick to judge on the success or failure of a building before it's had time to grow up into its adulthood that's a really insightful way of thinking about buildings which i hadn't really come across and it reflects on a couple of things around this idea that buildings uh, can also have a part of humanities or art in them they are still in some cases a kind of vector for ideas that there's meaning and that and actually there are so many parts of humanities which are no longer so much vectors for ideas because of the way that things have gone arguably even economists are now dealing in the micro of business whereas 100 to 200 years ago they were dealing with socialism capitalism what what systems that you would be they were vectors for ideas which broadly speaking they are no longer and i think about this in terms of theater because plays still are although again perhaps fewer but they are vectors for ideas as Mm -hmm. well about how maybe we should aspire to be on a big scale or little scale and actually they sometimes go through a similar life cycle sometimes the beginning they the really good ones are great and then you don't hear about them for again and then maybe they re-emerge with a lot of arts practice, which is perhaps a good segue to your very early life where you did have some theatre practice, actually both mm-hmm. in helping design theatre buildings, but also as a theatre and opera director. And you worked a little bit with Peter Brook, who is one of our was one of our most famed theatre and opera directors, but also found and I guess light touch rejuvenated a theatre space in France, Bouffe de Nord, which you've worked in and which I've seen work in. So I guess this is a multi-part thought question which you can handle, which was why did you lean into architecture and design when you could have lent into theatre, so the roots of your own thing? And what did you learn perhaps from Peter Brook or that theatre or that space or your work within design? Mm -hmm. I think when I reflect on looking at your wider work, that because you've been so sensitive to humanities, right? I think your music playing is great. You've done theatre work and things. That there's something about your places and your design which reflects this humanities. Yes, you've done the consultation of that, but actually you have got an eye or an ear out for not to channel Marie Kondo too much, but the kind of a spark of joy, something other, something to aspire to, which are what humanities and arts have as a question so anyway bringing it down theater peter brook design why architecture oh gosh great question and i maybe if i was to speak to my 20 year old self from today's perspective i might tell them to just stick with the theater but i think at the the time i think the thing with architecture or the built environment or the environment more generally is it's inescapable 
for everybody. Theatre and the arts, by and large, the audience makes a choice to go and engage with that. But actually, you walk down the street or drive around the city or wherever the countryside or wherever you might be, and whether or not you want to be affected by the environment, you are affected by the environment. And I think that felt to me really important that one was trying to influence that process to the best possible degree. And I think it was a really interesting time, and maybe we're going to come full cycle with this in, in, in a bit because it was early 2000s when I graduated and I was working in various different things and, and as you say in the theatre and thinking about what to do and we'd come out of obviously a period of quite a difficult time and there was a huge amount of energy going into regeneration and urban development and a lot of ideas as you say a lot of really big ideas about what that might look like it was a time of people like Richard Rogers writing towards an urban renaissance and advising government at the highest level. I don't think we've ever had an architect since him have that actual influence in government saying this is a picture of how our society and our cities could look really different. So it was a sort of interesting time to be moving into the built environment. But I think what I've taken from theatre and from working with Peter, which was a, a huge privilege and an amazing thing to be able to do was this idea that it's the human activity that is the center the kind of job of the person shaping the environment is to make the conditions for that human activity to be as as meaningful and as as joyful and as fulfilling as it could be and that way that as when you put a, a play on the stage the focus is the actors the focus shouldn't be the set or the lighting if the set and the lighting is wrong you notice it if you go to a play and you're noticing too much about the set and the lighting is probably a problem if it forms the perfect setting for the human drama that's when it's really working you almost don't remark on it because it's just working so so brilliantly and Peter you know took that to an extreme where he had barely any sets for anything you know a, a prop here or a bench or a curtain or something but almost nothing he was really you know pairing back to the idea that you just needed a space and a group of people watching and I think there's, there's something about that to say actually what is the least one can do it's not about putting your own ego on the stage as an, as an architect or as a designer or as a placemaker. It's what is the least you can do and what is the most strategic and clever way you can do those things that they have the greatest impact. Just subtle placement of, of elements in space or subtle sequence of spaces that can be made. And then what are the moments where you do need drama, surprise, joy? Those are the things when you turn a corner in a building or down a street and you see something that you weren't expecting and it makes you kind of amazed or surprised or maybe shocked as well. It's important sometimes. These are human emotions that are really important. I don't think the, the built environment can only not just be about things that you could have love and coming back to our earlier point not everybody loves the same thing some people will find a building or a space amazing and other people will absolutely hate it doesn't mean either of them are right but I do think it's important that we try and actually engage with those emotions uh, and create some response a little bit from people we're not trying to make everything grey mush just because it's a path of least resistance but actually sometimes you need to do something that is really surprising 
That seems to be a, a call to arms to designers, planners and architects everywhere. Great. So I have a short section on underrated, overrated and then wrap up. So that's that's good for you. So you could pass, you could just quick overrated, underrated, some semi-random things here. So overrated or underrated concrete. Ooh, that's an interesting yeah. one. So I actually think that concrete currently at least if you talk to those who are talking about embodied energy and so forth is actually underrated there's this great push to get rid of concrete out of buildings which is entirely understandable for many reasons however done it is an extremely durable building material to this point of longevity you can look at the parthenon and you can look at all these roma buildings built with concrete thousands of years ago I think we need to be much more discriminating about where we use it, but used selectively, carefully, smartly. It is a hugely important material. I think that we just have to be cleverer about where we choose to use it. And there's a huge wastage of concrete, for instance, road construction let's forget about buildings road construction is the single biggest use of concrete the amount of concrete that goes into our, our, our infrastructure is, is is hideous and i think we should do something about that but in buildings i think it's actually quite an important material to use still yeah and i think as we said if you take a two or three hundred year view not as bad and i've been around to a couple of sites there's one outside copenhagen whereas a brownfield they managed to use a process of recycling the concrete mm. and the studies for that showed actually it was pretty good in terms of carbon okay second one Heat pumps. Oh, heat pumps. Yeah, definitely underrated. Heat pumps are great. Heat pumps should be everywhere. <laughs> we should be making this really easy. And planning means it's not easy sometimes. I think it's a little bit of a misconception, actually. Is it just um, heritage areas? Yeah, and not even that. I think we need, this is an area where I think codes should be used because I think we just need much clearer rules. Yeah, really. really and you should be able to pattern. Yeah, really simple, really clear rules can be really challenging you know it can be quite challenging actually with the retrofit of historic buildings because they need air and they need to be, be out in the open they can't be hidden in a, in a basement boiler room like a, an old boiler but they are good i think the other thing that is good about them is essentially they are a kind of plug and play system so in what i mean by that is this technology is going to continue to change and evolve and maybe in 20 years everyone will be like heat pumps what was everybody thinking back <laughs> in their 2020s what a daft idea we've now got whatever some next generation but actually, they still work off, broadly speaking, pipe work and so forth that you could cut that heat pump off and put something else in and make it work. So I think that they are an important one. I think, yeah, making space for them in development, making enough space and making it easy to actually change that technology later down the line is really important. Yeah. But the infrastructure of heat pumps or, say, heating networks and the likes could, could well last for a very long time it's not the the physics of it yeah. aren't going to change because it's built on a fundamental physics principle yeah and to... they still they heat water and water runs in pipes and that's pretty straightforward and that's likely um, to remain <laughs> and, and the fact that they're electrically driven and we obviously are decarbonizing our electricity grid pretty successfully so that kind of all works sure underrated overrated self-building also a little bit of a mixture actually yeah. of underrated and overrated I think it is hard for people to build a home themselves. 
And when we say self-building in this country, and this obviously doesn't apply to Africa and parts of the subcontinent that are seeing shanty towns and things, that's a totally different thing. But if we're talking about, let's say, broadly speaking, developed economies, when we talk about self-building, we're not actually talking about building one's own self with one's own arms. One's talking about employing a small contractor, a small builder, to build a house that you have gone and gotten planning for that has been drawn by somebody um, you know, you're paying for a small-scale construction industry to take place on your plot. Um, and I think we have, I'd love to see more of it, but we have a big skills gap. And I think we are not confronting the skills gap here in terms of the technical knowledge and skills within the construction industry. Actually, it's bad at all scales. It's bad at the big company scale as well. If you go onto job sites and see what people are doing. But if we're trying to build energy efficient buildings and we're trying to build durable buildings that are going to last and not need to be pulled down or have terrible failures in the future, we need to have a far better sense of training and system for and value really for construction trades as things we slightly do need to get back to the idea of a master mason and people who were the most valued members of society at the time because it's difficult to build well you need to care you need to have an understanding of physics you need to have an understanding of technology and you need to have pride in your work and the conditions in a lot of job sites aren't that at the small or the big scale. So I'd like to see more self-building. I'd like to see our system set up better for that. But I don't want to see it if what it really means is poor quality construction, poor quality design coming through. And is that an education and training challenge or, like you say, uh, a value in society challenge? Arguably, we have a similar issue with teachers and nurses. Mm-hmm. Or is it a money problem as in we haven't we're not paying them enough in the value? I guess all of that is a little bit interlinked. But you would you put equal weight on all three or do you weight one of them a little bit more as a priority to, to try and invest in? I think there's a the two two things I think are a problem. Firstly, I think it's there's a issue around the structure of the construction industry, economic way it works, which is essentially a system of subcontracting and subcontracting down to the individual. If you're a very large construction firm building, I don't know, how many hundred yeah. homes, you're essentially just a layer of managers. You then subcontract the brickwork or the concrete or the timber or the plasterboarding or the, dry, the electrics or whatever. Let's say, let's just take one of those as an example. You're, bricklaying okay so you'll employ a, a bricklaying subcontract and you'll say to them please do all the brickwork for these 300 homes they actually then end up subcontracting that again and again yeah. down to the individual so that actually that individual bricklayer who's on the site will be a self-employed bricklayer they're not within a structure that is valuing or sustaining or helping them grow their skills yeah. it is a system that rewards get it done as quickly as possible get my day rate, which is actually their good day rates in the industry. I don't think the problem is necessarily money. Get my day rate and go off and never be seen again. And then if there's a problem with it down the line, it's like, you know, everyone's vaporised into thin air. Yeah, and the risk doesn't sit at the proper level if it sits anywhere because it's essentially been atomised away in legal contracts, which is fine on paper, but doesn't address the practicalities of do these people know how to build whatever they're building? 
are they aware of the right materials and design to use regardless of what's told to them from above because they can look and go this isn't the right sort of material look this is going to be flammable i don't care what something said it's just not right because i know this yeah i think that's a so very good it's, point it's a it is a i think a really big problem and i think when you get to the individual workmen on the site they're not bad people they're not necessarily even that ignorant, but they're being incentivized all the time to cut corners. Yeah, and sure. we haven't mentioned Grenfell, which we should really, because it's that is absolutely, that's laid bare in, in, in that project and that terrible tragedy. And it's really disappointing for me as an architect to walk onto a job site, to inspect work on site and talk to operatives and see things being done wrong and be told, oh, we were just told to get on and do it like that because we need to get off site and get it done in, in, in this amount of time. And there's no, there's just no custodianship of, of quality yeah. in that very little, with some honourable exceptions, very little custodianship of, of quality in the process. Yeah, and we don't seem to have learned. Actually, that I was on a, did a recent podcast with Lucy Easthope, who's a disaster planner specialist. And that's a similar theme coming through from that. And we're currently recording in a studio, which is in the shadow of Grenfell. Yeah. So it's definitely something on the mind and that's it you've got the causal problem fire and cladding but actually the those are the uh, surface elements of the structure and system whether you want to think about how we do housing social housing and things that we touched upon or the nature of contracting and subcontracting and risk and how how it's all how it's all thought about which could do with a real strong rethink okay last one on the overrated underrated and the wrap up would be Greenbelt land. I'm not sure how you can either overrate or underrate it. I suppose <laughs> the land itself is just land. The concept of the greenbelt is maybe what you mean as a, yeah, as a planning I guess, construct. Yes, yeah, so I guess as a planning construct. So I guess to unpack it a little bit, people seem to think there is actually good parts of the greenbelt and bad parts of the greenbelt. And because of the construct of the greenbelt, we can't at the moment develop anything on what probably geographers and planners and people would say oh these are bad bits and then because of the politics of the matter it's you know it's very log jammed but people accept that there are good bits and bad bits so that's why it's interesting to see whether net it's a underrated or overrated concept overrated i'm afraid yeah. i'm not a good a big fan of greenbelt policy i think i understand politically why it arose but it's so many parts of our, our system politics and this applies in many different fields and subject areas sometimes something that was put in for short-term pragmatic political reasons to try and get a get a bigger picture question through the pass through ends up being so enduring <laughs> one can think of for instance the, the the decision to allow gp practices to continue to be essentially self-contained businesses it was seen as just really necessary at the time to get the nhs over that hurdle but boy has it created problems for us and i think likewise the green belt was seen as a sort of necessary adjunct to other forms of planning that were coming out in the post-war period to allow people to feel like oh this is just not going to be uncontrolled sprawl but it's really provided a, a problem for us ever since. I am a strong proponent that we need to be transport-led with our planning in terms of where we plan for additional development. If From a sustainability perspective, it is really imperative that we stop having to use our cars so much. Electric cars are not the answer here. EVs are great, of course. They are part of the decarbonisation process. It is completely unsustainable and insane, frankly, how much land and resource we give over to road infrastructure. 
um, and how much time as well. Um, you know, so I am a strong proponent that we need to look at planning along transport corridors. What that means in practice is more of a finger model of development than a kind of donut ring for, form of development. And I would like to see the more of a green finger approach than a green belt approach, which says let's protect and enhance the green spaces that sit between these transport corridors how do we make them work best for not just agriculture but also for nature and biodiversity and also for people to enjoy and let's refocus our strategic planning along those transport corridors rail mainly and rapid bus and tram and so forth so that we can intensify those communities there's a huge amount of wasted uh, space I, I did my um dissertation for my architecture part two a billion and one years ago on exactly this and looking at a rural rail line and the tiny amount of land that was actually available for the development around it because of all of the various restrictions and how completely mad that was and we're still 20 years on or more this hasn't it's not being addressed very clear great and so would you like to comment on any current projects or future projects that you've got in the works, either in terms of writing projects or design and planning projects? Oh, we, we've got lots of really fun projects on in the studio at the moment. I mentioned this kind of the project up in Lowest of the Town Hall, taking up a lot of our time at the moment, but really interesting and, and hopefully quite impactful. Also more sort of policy space projects and things like that as well. We have a real focus and we're really interested in rural questions. It's, I think there are London and, and the big cities, loads of great architects and thinkers and people constantly pouring over them. The rural space is relatively unexamined, so I think we feel that there's a need for more thought and interesting approaches to be looked at in the rural domain. Yeah, and, and on a more sort of personal level, yeah, a few projects developing. One one little project that I don't know where it's going to go in the new year, but I'm actually going to be doing a little bit of recording work with someone who runs an amazing apple farm near us. He knows more about that land and that climate than really anybody I've ever met intimately. And I think it might be a really interesting lens to talk about climate change as well. Mm -hmm. I'm very interested in these kind of long-term futures and how we go and look beyond the sort of immediate short-term generation that we live in. And I guess a tree and an orchard is a kind of good vector for that in terms of those those wider processes of renewal and change. So, yeah, looking forward to, to talking with him and recording him and hopefully doing something with that in the future. That sounds really exciting. And would you like to end on any life advice or thoughts that you have, either about someone making wanting to have a career in design and architecture or someone wanting to make their mark in the world in terms of sustainability or arts or just anything you've observed we haven't touched upon actually your music which is also um something which you perform really highly at so i don't know any life advice or thoughts i mean i always hesitate to give too much life advice because it always just sounds like a old person being patronizing to young people to a degree um i mean i think that you know 
I think you and I think we were actually very lucky in the generation that we grew up in, in terms of the way that the world opened up for us and more than generations before and in many degrees more than the generation that's coming up behind us. So I, I do feel that we were very lucky to be able to broaden our perspectives, still have a pretty good education at low cost or no cost. I would say the thing I think is really important is to actually do things in the real world do projects that get your hands dirty practical things and probably not just things that exist online maybe they could be online but I would tend towards saying make something run a market stall or make some furniture and try and sell it or you know try and design some clothes and see how that process works because I think or, you know, take a disused space in your community and, you know, you walk past a derelict lot and you think that could be an amazing community garden or something, you know, try and make something practical happen in the world. Because what you learn from that is, firstly, that you ha can actually make things happen. You don't need to be scared of it. Really, it just takes someone with some persistence and energy to make things happen and then it can happen. But also, you'll learn an awful lot about the nature of bureaucracies and about the barriers that exist to systemic. There's about how to talk to communities, how to work and collaborate with other sorts of people. And I think that, I think getting out from behind the screen and, and into that space where you're having to negotiate and work with often frustrating things, but also with real people, learn to communicate, not be shy, just get out there, I think is really important. And I would definitely encourage anyone, certainly coming up into my field, but I think more, more generally, it's wonderfully liberating to find out how much you can actually make happen if you just dare <laughs> and, and go out there and aren't afraid to break things and, and get a bit messy and dirty in the process. That sounds like excellent advice. Uh, be a builder and be a maker. So on that note, Hannah, thank you very much. Thank you, Ben. Lovely to be here. Thanks for listening. If you want to find the transcript or other links, go to thendobetter.com. And please do like and subscribe or leave a review as it helps others find the podcast. Thank you. Be well. <laughs>